For about 10 to 15 years, Tim and Larissa Schuster were happily married. Then Tim said Larissa changed and the marriage became strained. Tim wanted to work on the marriage, but Larissa insisted on a divorce. But she wanted Tim to walk away with nothing and that wasn't something Tim was going to agree to. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. This episode was recommended by Nate, so thank you for sending this over. Nate always sends in complicated cases, so I knew I was going to need to save this one for when I had the time to jump into something complex. And as my notes grew and grew, I knew this was going to have to be a two-parter. Though this case was on a number of 30 to 60 minute long shows like Snapped and Dateline, I have no idea how they did it because I tried to cut this down to a single episode and I ended up adding five pages. Since this case was on Dateline, I thought it was a perfect time to have my new friends over from the Date with Dateline podcast on an after show to discuss all things Dateline and maybe a little about this case. So watch for that after show in the feed next week after part two comes out. Those after shows never take the place of my regular content, but I can tell by the analytics that the majority of you are enjoying them, so I have even more planned coming up. My main sources for these two episodes were court documents, which may explain why I just kept going and going and going with information. In fact, these two parts are almost entirely from those documents, though I did use some amazing articles from the Fresno Bee, and as always, you can find the link to all of my sources in the show notes. One of the reasons this case caught my eye when it came through the suggestion list was that it looked like, on the surface, it was going to be a Missouri case, which is where I live, but it is not. It started in Missouri, sort of, but that's not where most of it happened. But, you know, Missouri's always a good place to start. Larissa Foreman was born and raised in Clarence, Missouri, which is a very small town about an hour north of Columbia, Missouri. Columbia is not a big town by most standards, but it is a college town, so it's the closest thing to on the map that Clarence will be. Larissa grew up on a pig farm, knowing the usual hard work of getting up early before school to do her chores and then go to class. Larissa told friends growing up that her father was very strict, possibly even abusive, and that life at home was stressful. But even with all of that, Larissa excelled in sports, with her name showing up in the paper as a high scorer on her high school varsity basketball team. And she also excelled in school as well with a strong aptitude for science. Larissa went to the University of Missouri in Columbia to study biochemistry. And it's while she was there that she met a nurse named Timothy Allen Schuster. They were both working at a nursing home at the time. Tim had also grown up on a farm in a small town, but he grew up in Illinois. He was always a gentle person who grew up in a close-knit Lutheran family, and he loved animals. After he graduated high school, he attended a local community college while he also worked as an EMT to pay for his nursing degree. Tim was the compassionate type of person you would hope would go into a profession like nursing. 
After he graduated with his nursing degree, he took a job at the Boone County Hospital in Columbia. And while he was working at that nursing home, he met Larissa when coworkers set them up. The two were married in 1982. They had a daughter together who was born in 1985. And then in 1989, they moved to Fresno, California. Larissa had received a job offer at an agricultural lab, and it was a job that was too good to pass up. A year after they arrived in California, the couple had a son. While in California, Tim finished up his bachelor's in nursing while he was working for St. Agnes Hospital. With his bachelor's degree, he was promoted to manager of the cardiac catheterization lab. The family seemed like the usual successful family with two professional parents, beautiful, kind children, weekly attendance at church, and Tim had even joined the Masonic Lodge. But as you already know from my introduction to this episode, that there were cracks along the way in what looked like the perfect family. A lot of people didn't see them until the early 2000s, but if you asked Larissa's co-workers, they would say it started earlier than that. At the lab with this job that they moved to California for, Larissa had a management role. That was part of why she took the job. She was overseeing two dozen scientists. She was incredibly good at her job, but she didn't tolerate much. One employee told the Fresno Bee that Larissa went on a curse-laden rant over a dirty microwave in the lab's cafeteria. She said Larissa seemed completely out of control as she was just yelling at everyone in the cafeteria. And that wasn't the only incident. People respected her because she was an intelligent woman and good at what she did, but they also feared her outbursts and her tirades. And it seemed like some of that was coming out in the home as well, where Larissa began finding Tim's more passive, conflict-avoidant personality more and more grating. I'm sure it didn't help when they decided to go into business together. It was in the late 1990s when Larissa decided she wanted to start her own lab. She was a go-getter. She was brilliant with both science and business, and soon her lab was a huge success. Tim still worked at the hospital, but he also worked part-time doing the lab's bookkeeping. Successful businesses don't come easy, and Larissa had to focus almost solely on her business as she got it off the ground. Tim took over the majority of the after-school tasks and taking the kids here, there, and everywhere like anyone with kids knows about. It seemed to be worth it, though, to provide themselves and their children with a wonderful life. They soon bought a 3,500-square-foot home in an affluent neighborhood in Clovis, California, and the kids were in sports and music lessons. According to what Tim told friends, though, Larissa was changing. Though she had always been the dominant personality in their relationship, Tim said it started crossing the line in the late 1990s, early 2000s. He confided in some close friends that it was crossing into verbal abuse and on a few occasions, physical, with Larissa hitting him. 
While neighbors never heard any physical altercations, they certainly heard the yelling. They told the Fresno Bee that they would hear Larissa screaming, maybe at the kids, maybe at Tim. They couldn't tell. Regardless, they never heard anyone yell back. It was always Larissa they heard. One issue in their marriage, according to Larissa, was with parenting, where she was put in the role to be the one always disciplining the children. And this really came to a head when their daughter was a teenager. She began to rebel, in Larissa's eyes at least, which is something that's always difficult for parents to deal with, but more so if the parent has controlling tendencies. Larissa decided to send their daughter to live on the family farm with her parents in Missouri. And though Tim was not entirely on board with this, Larissa won the argument. You'd think that maybe Larissa thought the small town, simple life away from bad influences was what her daughter needed. But the straw that broke the camel's back was when Larissa found out that her daughter was maybe possibly dating outside of her race. Larissa told friends that interracial dating was strictly forbidden in their family, and she felt confident that her parents would keep her daughter away from that in their town, which was 98% white. So things in the marriage were not going smoothly when, in around 2001, Tim confronted Larissa with his suspicions that she was having an affair, or possibly more than one when she would travel out of town for work. Larissa fully admitted she had cheated during their marriage. From what she told others, in explicit detail, she and Tim didn't have much of a sex life after the first 10 years or so due to impotency, and that was a major source of contention in their relationship. The couple did try counseling. Tim saw the marital counseling as a sign. Larissa wanted to work on things, but Larissa didn't want to. She actually wanted a divorce, and she was just doing the steps she felt you were supposed to do when you're ending a marriage. In early 2002, Larissa went ahead and filed for divorce. Though it wasn't what Tim wanted, he obviously couldn't stop it. And if Larissa thought Tim was going to roll over and just give her whatever she wanted in the divorce, like he had during much of their marriage, she was sorely mistaken. Tim was going to fight for equitable asset division as well as custody of their minor son. He didn't want to be an every other weekend father. And the 50-50 split of assets was actually going to be very costly for Larissa. The way the couple had set up Larissa's business was that she owned 51% of the company and Tim owned 49%. So Larissa couldn't even go to court and argue that the lab didn't count as community property and that she shouldn't have to split it with Tim. He actually owned 49% of the business based on how they set it up. If Larissa wanted to buy Tim out of his share, it would cost around $1 million. 
if she didn't buy him out, she would have to continue to pay him his profit share for as long as the business was running. If she shut it down or sold it, she would still have to pay him 49% of everything. And this was, reportedly, infuriating to Larissa because it was her business, her lab, her blood, sweat, tears, and long hours. And then we're going to add in a fancy house, the vehicles, and the rest of the community property, and we're talking about a pretty expensive divorce. Larissa wanted Tim to walk away with almost none of it, certainly not half of her business, and she was prepared to fight that out in court. And for the first time in 20 years, Tim seemed ready to fight back. They continued living in the same tension-filled home from February of 2002, when Larissa filed for divorce, until July, when they hashed out a temporary agreement. Larissa would stay in the family home, Tim would move out, and Tim would get visitation while she had primary physical custody of their son. None of this was set to be permanent, but it was something in place while they continued to fight it out in court. After this agreement, Tim moved into a nearby condo. So you'd think Larissa would be happy. She at least got to stay in the house, and Tim had to move out. But Larissa didn't approve of how Tim moved out. Surely, to avoid conflict or drama, Tim physically moved out while Larissa was out of town visiting family in Missouri. And when she came home, she was livid. She wanted Tim out, but she wanted it on her terms. He had taken some household items with him for his new place without her permission or consent. From Tim's perspective, he took some of his share of what they had, but it was just things he needed to get his household going, and it really wasn't even half of what he was entitled to. But to Larissa, Tim had robbed her. Larissa started calling Tim and leaving a vulgar and vile voicemails. Some of the messages were threatening, and she demanded items back. And this is why I don't have the impression he took anything too big, because what she was yelling about in those voicemails were doilies and mixing bowls and even woven baskets. Had Tim truly taken even half the items in the house, had taken things that really left her in the lurch, surely she wouldn't have been throwing a fit over mixing bowls. We also learned through these messages that in addition to allegedly being a racist, Larissa was also a homophobe, and I say this due to the specific slurs and insults she opted to use in these calls to Tim. Just like Larissa screaming in the work cafeteria over the state of a microwave, it seemed like Larissa was losing control in these situations. This divorce was still pending. The custody deal was temporary. Tim still wanted primary custody. Yet, Larissa knowingly allowed Tim's voicemail to record her being absolutely unhinged and abusive. Those types of recordings are exactly what ends up as Exhibits 1 through 99 at a custody trial. 
But it turns out Larissa was just getting started. About a month after Tim moved out on August 10th, 2002, Tim returned to his condo after a trip out of town, and he found that someone had broken in through his garage. This person had managed somehow to get into the garage without issue, but then had to pry the door from the garage into the home. They had ransacked the place, and some things were taken. Most of the items were of minimal value, while a computer, some cash, and more expensive electronics were left untouched. And that told Tim exactly who had done this. Because among the items taken were a set of mixing bowls and a couple wicker baskets. Basically, the things Larissa had demanded Tim return to her. Also gone was a log sheet Tim was keeping that documented everything he did for his son and when he saw him and things like that the sort of thing that is usually kept when you're in a custody battle. No thief on this planet would want that notebook more than Larissa Schuster. Tim reported the crime to the police, and though they interviewed Larissa, they had no proof she had any involvement. As you can imagine, this break-in didn't help the divorce go more smoothly. Tim moved to a house that had an alarm system installed, he bought a gun, and he got a concealed carry permit. He told his friends he was afraid of what Larissa would do. Larissa, for her part, continued with the abusive voicemails. These included the name-calling, like before, saying things like how much she hated him, and even threatening to have his nursing license revoked. The abusive voicemails ended around November of 2002, and then the two communicated pretty much solely through email. They chose a neutral location for custody exchanges, which was a salon where Larissa got weekly manicures on Thursdays. And then the divorce dragged on into 2003. Neither party seemed too eager to settle. Tim wanted his half, and Larissa wanted him to get far less than that, particularly when it came to her business. The two also vented to friends about their complaints in regards to the other one. Tim even planned to take some of his complaints to court, particularly about Larissa's behavior and concerns that she was violating terms of their temporary custody agreement. Larissa, on her part, was planning a dream vacation for her son, which would include a trip to Disney World, and she complained to people that she was pretty sure Tim was going to try to pull something to make the trip not happen, just to cause drama. A lot of their complaints could have been figured out in mediation, with stipulation agreements, if these two could ever come together and agree on anything. But there were motivations here, I would say, for Larissa to settle this divorce faster. I get that she didn't want Tim to have his 49% of the business, but the business was becoming more and more lucrative 
the longer things dragged on. Larissa signed a multi-million dollar contract with Bayer, which is one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. This contract happened after the separation, so perhaps it wouldn't be part of the community property division, but Tim still owned his 49%. The business was becoming more valuable, and that meant Larissa had more money to protect. She may have been better off settling with Tim early on and then moving on as the sole owner as the business continued to grow. And maybe she realized this along the way. She definitely started showing signs of stress as things were compounding. Friends said she was dealing with hair loss. She attributed to the stress as well as starting to take antidepressants at some point during all of this. For Tim, I don't think things were much better. Legal battles are always expensive and they're always stressful. Tim was worried about Larissa's escalating aggression towards him, particularly after the break-in. And then in July 2003, Tim lost his job when the hospital was downsizing. But Tim was looking on the bright side. When he had his parenting time with his son, he spent it fully engaged with him. He even thought maybe a new job would allow him to have greater flexibility, which would mean more time with his son may even look better in his custody battle. He was actively rebuilding his relationship with his daughter, who was still living in Missouri. He called her almost daily just to talk. And to point out the contrast here, Larissa, around the same time, sent her daughter a letter calling her a whore. But without Larissa influencing his relationship with his daughter, that was rebuilding at least for Tim. On Wednesday, July 9th, 2003, shortly after learning he was going to lose his position at the hospital, Tim had dinner with his coworker, Mary Solis, who had also been laid off. At the dinner were Mary's husband, Bob, and a mutual friend named Vic. They vented about losing their jobs, but really, Tim didn't seem too upset or too worried. Mary and Tim both had their exit interviews with HR the next day, and they would find out about their severance packages or if there was possibly a chance they could be reassigned or even apply elsewhere in the hospital. Tim had his interview first thing in the morning, and then Mary's meeting was two hours after that, so they made plans to meet up for breakfast in between. After breakfast, Tim would need to then run by his attorney's office to pick up some papers. Tim left his friend's house around 9 or 10 p.m. to head home. The next morning, which was a Thursday, Tim didn't make it to the breakfast with Mary and Bob. And then Mary learned Tim hadn't made it to his meeting with HR either. Mary then called Tim on his cell phone. No answer. Tried his landline. Still no answer. So she called their friend Vic and asked him if he could swing by Tim's house to check up on him. When Vic got to the house, he realized that Tim wasn't home, which was odd because his truck was there and inside the truck was Tim's wallet. Everything in the house looked pretty normal for someone who didn't know Tim, but Vic noticed something. Tim was pretty particular about how he kept his home, 
and Vic found dirty dishes in the sink that had dried food on them. That's not something Tim would do, leave the house for hours and hours with dirty dishes in the sink. Vic went into the bedroom, and he saw Tim's cell phone and his watch on the nightstand. Two things that Tim always took with him when he left. Even if Tim went out for a walk or a run, he would have taken a cell phone with him. So while there were no obvious signs something terrible had happened in the house, there were these little signs that something was just not quite right. The following day, on Friday, July 11th, when the friends still hadn't heard from Tim, Mary and Bob went to Tim's house and called the police to report him missing. An officer, Willow, responded to the call and entered the home around 9 a.m. to take the report and have a look around. He found the same things Vic had found, and it was clear that Tim had not been home since Vic had been in the house the day before. Officer Willow noticed something that Vic had missed. By the front door, he saw a briefcase on a chair, but what really caught his eye was the seat cushion. It wasn't lying flat. He realized there was something under the cushion, and when he lifted it, he found a handgun. Officer Willow then used Tim's cell phone, which was still in the bedroom, to call numbers that had been programmed in to see if anyone had seen Tim. One of the people called was Larissa, who said she hadn't heard from Tim in weeks other than custody pickup and drop-off, and that Tim had not shown up to their scheduled pickup the night before. Another person Officer Willow called was Teresa Lopez, She was the manicurist whose shop was used for exchanging custody. Teresa told the officer that she was supposed to have seen Tim the night before, that Thursday, July 10th, when he picked his son up. Larissa showed up around 5.30 as scheduled for her weekly manicure, and her son was with her, but they waited around for Tim, who should have been there around 6, but never showed. According to Teresa, Larissa wasn't upset about this at all. Usually, she spent her time in the salon complaining about Tim, but on this day, she told Teresa she had a feeling the divorce was finally going to go her way. No one seemed to know where Tim was, and no one had seen him since the dinner with Mary, Bob, and Vic. An early concern for the police was that Tim, having lost his job while in the middle of a stressful, prolonged, and costly divorce, was at a risk of harming himself. But the gun they found in the house was his, and if he had taken off to harm himself, he likely would have taken his gun with him. So then they wondered if maybe he had left to clear his head a bit, but... Why didn't he come back? And how did he get where he was going? He left his vehicle and all of his bank cards behind. It was enough that Officer Willow thought there was more than appeared on the surface, so he turned the case over to detectives on Friday afternoon. They entered the home themselves, and one of them noticed some minor but fresh damage to the entryway wall, like something had knocked into it. They also checked the caller ID for Tim's landline phone, 
and they saw that there was a phone call at 2.02 a.m. on July 10th, hours after Tim was last seen at his friend's house. They ran the number and learned it was Larissa Schuster's cell number. They also searched the briefcase on the chair that was near the door, and they found a small tape recorder. When they hit play, they heard a series of voicemails. It was a woman's voice, and from the context, they knew this was Tim's estranged wife. Tim had been saving Larissa's vulgar and threatening voicemails, which some of Tim's friends had known about because he had played the tape for them. Having just listened to Larissa tell Tim how much she hated him and knowing she was the last one to call Tim, the police reached out to her and asked if she was willing to come to the station for an interview. She said yes, and she arrived around 10 p.m. that Friday night. Once in the interview room, Larissa was very talkative. She hardly waited for any questions before telling the detectives all about her marital issues with Tim, including how they didn't have sex for the last 10 years of their marriage. She talked about how bad their marriage was, how rough the separation had been, and that she and Tim rarely spoke. She called him passive-aggressive, which I guess was quite a contrast to her method of communication, which was clearly aggressive-aggressive. But in watching snippets of this interview, it really seems to me like Larissa went in there knowing what information she wanted to convey to the police, and she was just barreling on through it. After an hour, the police finally had a chance to ask some of their questions, and they asked Larissa about the last time she saw or talked to Tim. She said she had last seen him on July 5th, which was their last custody drop-off, but it had been months since she had spoken to him through anything except email. She said that Tim had emailed her on Tuesday, letting her know that he was still picking up their son as planned at 6 p.m. on Thursday at the salon. But Larissa said he didn't show. When she left the salon to go home with her son, she bumped into a friend who mentioned something about Tim losing his job. She thought that might have something to do with why Tim didn't show up. Both she and her son tried to contact him by phone that evening, but he never responded. Larissa said she tried to call him at 8.30 and then at 10.30, but he didn't answer. So she drove out to his house, but he didn't answer the door, so she left and didn't reach out again. Larissa said it was unlike Tim to miss a pickup, but she wasn't upset when he didn't show. She mentioned that vacation they had coming up and said that they had early flights on Sunday morning. She was already stressed that Tim would purposely cause issues getting their son back to her in time for those flights. The investigators then asked Larissa where she was the night before the custody drop-off on Wednesday. Larissa started talking about how she was at work that day, but they were more interested in where she was that night after Tim left his friend's house and was never seen again. 
Larissa said she watched a movie with her son and then fell asleep on the couch. They asked Larissa if she had called Tim, and she said she hadn't. But then Larissa said, actually, when she woke up on the couch, her phone was under her, and it did look like it had been dialed. So maybe it was possible she rolled on it and hit some buttons. They asked if she had Tim on speed dial, and she said she thought so. The investigators asked if they could see Larissa's phone, obviously so they could confirm this, but she told them that she had left it at home. It was at this point in the interview that they told her that they knew the last call Tim got on his home phone came from her cell. They then started giving Larissa the chance to remember the call. Was it possible she called about custody or about child support or something else that may have overwhelmed Tim in the moment? Maybe that final conversation pushed Tim over the edge to run off. But Larissa said again that she didn't talk to him that night and she didn't know what his state of mind would have been. One of the detectives then left the room, and he was thinking about her denial that she called Tim and her insistence she left her phone at home. He was suspicious, to be honest, so he walked out into the parking lot, which was nearly empty at this point since it was pretty late at night, and he quickly spotted Larissa's Lexus. He looked in the window and saw a cell phone in the center console. So he dialed the number they got from the caller ID at Tim's house and the cell phone rang. He walked back into the interview room to let Larissa know the good news that she hadn't left her phone at home after all. They offered to walk her out to her car so she could get the phone. After Larissa got the phone, they went back into the interview room and Larissa couldn't find Tim's number on her speed dial. So it seemed pretty impossible that she rolled over, pushed a few buttons, and just so happened to call Tim. Larissa then asked for a glass of water. The detectives both left the room at this point, which was strategic. They left Larissa alone with her phone. But of course, there were cameras watching the whole time so they could see Larissa on the monitors. She was shaking as she started messing with her phone, pushing a bunch of buttons. And when the investigators went back in there, she told them she had found Tim's number. She had it, for some reason, listed under her son's name. But oops, she had accidentally deleted it while she was trying to retrieve it. At this point, come on. Larissa was smart enough to know she was using one lie to cover up another to cover up another, and the mood in the room was shifting. She saw it. So at this point, she gave up. Larissa said yes, she did call Tim. She said that she was worried that if Tim took their son the next day as planned, he wouldn't return him in time for their Sunday flights, because that's just how Tim was. He was reluctant to give at all on parenting time. So Larissa had called him to talk to him about it, but she said Tim was half asleep when he answered and the call didn't even last 30 seconds. 
Larissa apologized for lying and said that she really didn't know what happened from that call until Tim missed his HR meeting. After a little more talking, Larissa admitted that she did have a notebook in her possession that belonged to Tim, and it had to do with their custody issues, so she agreed to turn it over to the police. The investigators really didn't leave this with a great impression of Larissa, but it was also possible that she was lying just to make herself seem less suspicious. She would know that being the angry ex would place her near the top of the suspect list. And there was something else Larissa may have been trying to distance herself from, and that was the break-in at Tim's house. A few sources had already told the police about that break-in and about how Larissa was almost surely involved. One of these people was Larissa's manicurist, Teresa. Larissa loved to gossip and confide in Teresa, and with weekly manicures, she had plenty of opportunities to do so. Teresa was the person Larissa told about having met a man at a convention in Chicago, and had an affair. She was one of the first people Larissa told about filing for divorce. And then she heard every up and down of the divorce process, of which there were many. Larissa told Teresa that she prayed daily that Tim would die. She admitted that she ransacked and stole from Tim's condo, and said she even went back a couple of times while he was still out of town to just sit there and enjoy the mess she made for him. Larissa said it was better than sex. Larissa also told Teresa that she had help with the robbery from three people, and one was a man named James. And Larissa was aware Tim suspected she did it because he had called her upset about it. He told her he couldn't even file an insurance claim because he hadn't gotten renter's insurance yet. The police contacted Larissa when Tim reported the robbery, and she told them she didn't have anything to do with it. But then she told Teresa that she gave an Oscar-worthy performance in her statement to the police. And Tim, for his part, had also confided a little in Teresa, saying he was afraid of Larissa, and if anything happened to him, it wouldn't be an accident. Teresa really had no desire to protect anyone in this situation, and she came forward to the police with everything she knew pretty much as soon as she learned Tim was missing. And with Teresa giving the name James, as someone Larissa said was involved in the break-in, they checked that against Tim's contacts programmed into his Palm Pilot. They only found one person named James, and that was James Fagoni. James Fagoni's parents knew Tim Schuster, and it was through them that he met Larissa in 2001. He was in his early 20s, and Larissa hired him as a lab assistant in 2002. He eventually quit the lab and became a part-time personal assistant to Larissa. Not a professional business assistant, but more for her personal life. James would do things like run errands, do tasks around the house, and even babysit Larissa's son from time to time. 
So the investigators were wondering if James would also assist with a break-in, or possibly worse. It was definitely worth looking into. On Monday, July 14th, about five days after Tim was last seen, James went to the Clovis police station for this interview. He was asked about Larissa, and he said he saw her frequently over the last week, and the last time was on Saturday, July 12th, when he had driven her son somewhere. The investigators first broached the topic of the break-in. James denied it, but in a bit of a wishy-washy way. Instead of just saying, no, I didn't take stuff from Tim's condo, he said, not really, no. I mean, how do you not really break into a house? They pushed him on it, and James eventually admitted that he went there with Larissa on the night of the break-in. He wrote out a two-page statement with the details of the burglary. It included that his payment for helping was that he could take some electronics. But he said the things Larissa took from the home were hers anyway. She was just simply taking them back. Though they managed to get James to give them information on the break-in, they got nothing out of him in regards to Tim's disappearance. The police told James to get all the items he had in his possession related to the theft and to bring them to the station. He agreed he would do this, and then, like Larissa, he was free to go. So the police now knew that the two were involved in the burglary, and they suspected they were involved in Tim's disappearance. They just needed some evidence because at that point, they had circumstantial evidence and light circumstantial evidence at that. Things like how Larissa had scabbed over marks on her legs that they saw during her interview. Larissa said they were from gardening, but the investigators who had experience in domestic violence cases thought they looked like fingernail marks. They had also pulled Larissa's phone records and found that Tim wasn't the only person she called in the overnight hours. She had called James about 30 minutes before she called Tim, even though she told the police initially that she was asleep. And when she fessed up to actually being awake and calling Tim, she didn't mention that she had also called someone else. These are the types of things that make the police suspicious, but they needed evidence. And they wouldn't need to wait very long for it. On the same day James was interviewed, a huge break in the case came when one of Larissa's employees from the lab contacted them. Leslie, who was a chemist at the lab, had quite the story to tell. She said she came forward because after she learned about Tim's disappearance, things she thought were odd started to look very suspicious. It all began a full 11 months before Tim went missing, so around the time of the burglary. Larissa asked Leslie if she would rent a storage unit for her. But Leslie had to rent it in her own name. Larissa said she wanted to hide some of the items she didn't want to give to Tim or have to split with him in the divorce. Leslie, like a lot of people in Larissa's world, did as she was asked. This is something people noted about Larissa. She had not just a big personality, 
she had an overbearing personality, and she could often convince or push people to do things for her because it was just easier to do it than it was to say no and deal with the aftermath. Leslie told the police that after she rented the storage unit, she gave the access code and the key to Larissa, and she never went back there. The storage unit didn't become suspicious to Leslie until the weekend after Tim went missing. On the afternoon of Saturday, July 12th, Larissa called Leslie and said she needed help at the lab with a piece of equipment. When Leslie got there, Larissa confessed that she lied about why she needed to see Leslie. She said she was afraid her phone was being tapped by the police. Leslie assumed that fear came from Tim's disappearance. She had already seen something about it in the paper. And this assumption was correct. Larissa told her how she spoke with the police and got caught in a lie about a telephone call. So she was worried she was under investigation. Larissa seemed nervous, but she told Leslie to just cooperate with the police and be honest with them if they asked her anything while Larissa was on vacation. And then she asked Leslie to call her if the police wanted to search the lab. Larissa also asked Leslie to make the payment on the storage unit while she was out of town, but unlike her previous statement that she made literally a minute before telling Leslie to cooperate, she did say for Leslie not to mention the storage unit to the police. Larissa then asked Leslie if she knew anyone who had a truck that had a lift because she had to move a rototiller that was at her house and had to go to a friend's house. I have to say it must have been very interesting to have this conversation with Larissa. It started with, my phones may be tapped because they think I did something to Tim, and it ended with, oh, by the way, I need a truck to move something heavy. No wonder after Leslie processed this, she got suspicious. Leslie didn't know anyone with a truck like what Larissa wanted, but she did agree to rent one from U-Haul for Larissa. So while Leslie went to go rent the truck, Larissa said she was going to meet with a detective to give him something. This item was the notebook that belonged to Tim that she said she would turn over. Around 4 p.m., Larissa met with the detective and gave him the notebook. When she left, they did attempt to follow her. As Larissa drove towards Clovis, she began driving erratically. They actually had to stop following her for safety reasons, but they headed to her house since that's where they believed she was going. They ended up pulling up about the same time Larissa did. Larissa went inside the house, and not long after that, James Fagoni drove up. He went inside, he stayed about 20 minutes, and then when he left, Larissa's son was with him. This is actually in line with what he had already told the police about what happened that day. Larissa then left the house again, and like the first time, she started speeding off and driving erratically to the point that they had to back off again for public safety. This is where Leslie's story picks back up because this is when Larissa drove to pick up the rental truck from her. 
Leslie said Larissa seemed to be in quite the rush, and it was around 5.45. Less than an hour later, Larissa called Leslie again and asked her to meet her at the U-Haul company so that she could return the truck. The truck was charged by the mile, so Leslie had to check the mileage when she returned it. And the U-Haul only had 17 miles on it. She made a comment to Larissa about it because the distance to Larissa's home was more than 17 miles, let alone the distance to wherever she was dropping off the rototiller. But Larissa said it actually wasn't as far as Leslie thought, which Leslie knew was just not true. Leslie also noticed that Larissa was dirty with scrapes on her arms and shins and even had blood on her shoe. Larissa brushed it all off. The blood was because she smashed her toe while loading the rototiller, and the dirt and the scrapes were from that move as well. When Leslie went to work Monday morning, the day after Larissa and her son left on their trip, she found a check on her desk for over $500 with the words travel expenses written in the memo. Leslie said Larissa only owed her about $60 for the rental truck and the storage fees for the month. So what was the rest of the money for? My only guess is um, hush money. Leslie didn't know how all of these pieces fit together in relation to Tim's disappearance, but she knew the police should know about it and did the right thing and came forward. The investigators were very interested in that storage unit, particularly since Larissa specifically told Leslie not to mention it to the police. They checked the security records and found that the unit Larissa used had been accessed during the window of time she had the U-Haul truck. So it seemed very likely the heavy thing Larissa needed that truck to move was either moved to or from the storage unit. And there would probably be evidence of it there, even if it had been moved out. With all of the information they had, the police got search warrants for Larissa's lab, her home, and the storage unit. All three warrants were executed at about the same time. During the search of the lab, a can of Lysol air freshener was found. Seems innocuous enough unless you've worked in a chemistry lab before. Because you would know spray air fresheners would never be used because of the concern that the chemical mist would contaminate the tests being run. There aren't a lot of smells out there to cover up that would be worth risking having to trash all of that work. The police also searched a locked dumpster behind the lab. Near the bottom of the dumpster was a case of empty bottles. The shipping label on the box was to the lab, and the bottles were labeled hydrochloric acid. Leslie had already told the police that she had noticed purchase orders for hydrochloric acid. The lab would usually use about one bottle of hydrochloric acid per year, but this order involved three cases. Each case had six bottles. 
So they went from one bottle a year to 18 being ordered in one month. Thinking it was an error, Leslie brought it to Larissa, who told Leslie not to worry about it. And now they had found four empty bottles in the dumpster, and all the other bottles were gone from the shelf. Leslie said the dumpster was emptied twice a week, so those two-and-a-half-liter bottles could not have been there for more than a few days. There were no circumstances in which the lab would have needed to use 10 liters of hydrochloric acid in half a week. The police also took the computer out of Larissa's office, and a forensic analysis would later show that back in June, about a month before Tim went missing, someone did internet searches for sulfuric acid, acid digestion tissues, and acid digestion animal tissues. The lab did agricultural work, but not with animals or digestion. They worked mostly with fertilizers, pesticides, and that sort of thing. So this wasn't likely a work-related search. So those were the main highlights of the search of the lab. The search of the storage unit began with officers approaching the roll-up door and immediately getting hit by a foul odor. When they opened the unit, it got so bad that they needed breathing equipment to enter. At first, they just saw normal household items like Christmas decorations and even some of the things Tim reported missing from his condo. If not for that odor, it would have just seemed like any other storage unit. In the back corner was a bunch of stuff just piled up, and under that pile was a blue barrel covered in the front with a piece of cardboard. It was definitely being masked visually, but there was no masking the smell that came from it. The police then opened the barrel, and they found a liquid substance and the lower half of a human body floating. They immediately suspected that this was the body, or what was left of the body, of 45-year-old Tim Schuster. After safely removing the body from the barrel and from that acid solution that it was in, the remains were transferred for autopsy. The Emmy was able to get a good enough DNA sample that they could confirm that this was Tim. The autopsy also showed that both ankles had fractures that were caused by a cutting instrument. Testing on the liquid showed that it was hydrochloric acid as well as decomposing soft tissue. At the time the body was found, Larissa and her son were off on their vacation, unaware of this development. The police decided to leave Larissa in the dark just a little longer while they continued to gather evidence. And that evidence would come from James Fagoni. The morning after the body was found, James was interviewed, and he gave a story that filled in a lot of the blanks the police had 
with their emerging theory of the crime. But the question was, was James's story the truth? And would it be enough to take in front of a jury? And we will find that out next week on part two, or you can find part two available now on Patreon or Apple subscriptions early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.